This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Moteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking with Professor Caleb Wellam. Uh, professor Caleb Wellam is a professor of history at the University of Toronto, and he's here to talk with us about a great book he published with John Hopkins University Press in 2023. The book is called Energizing New Liberalism, the 1970s Energy Crisis and the Making of Modern America. Caleb, uh, thank you very much for accepting our invitation. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Uh, before we start, can you please just briefly introduce yourself, tell us about your field of expertise, and more importantly, why you decided to write this book? What's the story of the inception of the book? Sure. So, uh, as you said, I, I'm a professor, assistant professor, uh, uh, on a, a contract, actually, at the University of Toronto, Mississauga, where I teach um, modern history. So I teach a lot of United States history, um, but also the history of capitalism, history of environmental thought and environmental politics. So I sort of think of myself as a cultural historian of environmental politics and environmental crisis um, and a cultural historian of capitalism. And the United States is kind of my um, laboratory for thinking through those kinds of things. Um, but often the United States in a global frame or context. And I think that might be a unique thing about this book. Um, it's that I'm I'm actually from Canada. I'm not an American. Um, and I did my PhD in Canada at the University of Toronto, uh, St. George. So I think I take a, a slightly different view of U.S. history than you might normally get if you have, you know, an American working in American institutions writing U.S. history. It's a little more of an outsider's um, perspective. Um, so the book began as a dissertation at the University of Toronto. Um, but I first became interested in the energy crisis actually in 2008. So during the the economic crisis of that period of the Great Recession, there was also a crisis or a concern about rising oil prices into the summer of 2008 in particular. And this was around the time of the I didn't realize at the time, because I was just an undergraduate and master's student, that it was the revival or return of peak oil discourse. It's the first time I'd heard of the concept of peak oil, the idea that the world was 
uh, imminently, quickly running out of oil, and this would cause some kind of social and political crisis. And so that kind of, um, those concerns were swirling around in 2008. The price crisis was swirling in 2008. I kind of heard about this thing called the energy crisis of the 1970s. And it seemed very interesting to me as something that I hadn't heard much about in a lot of my the reading I'd done so far. And it seemed like not that many people had written about it. And it, as the more I learned about it, it seemed like um, 2008 was a different crisis, but had a lot of similarities, um, a lot of echoes, reverberations. And so I wanted to understand, you know, this previous crisis, could it teach us anything about how to respond to what was happening um, in the late 2000s? And so I began working on um, the book as a PhD student um, about 11 years ago, wow. uh, which is crazy to think about. But when you're a PhD student, you're teaching, you're doing your comprehensive exams, et cetera. And then the, the revision process um, was quite long. The book, once I did the finished the PhD, wrote a proposal, um, went through the peer review process, et cetera. It was kind of a, a long process, but I think um, it helped to refine some of the ideas that began mm. kind of murkily in this PhD project into something a little sharper and more coherent. Mm. Uh, you mentioned the 1970s oil shock, oil crisis, uh, and I myself wasn't familiar with it until I guess 19... Uh, sorry, 2012 or 2011, I heard the term oil shock. And I didn't know that Arab countries, for example, impose an embargo. But anyway, just for the briefly, maybe for the uninitiated, if you could tell us uh, what the oil crisis of 1970s was, and then tell us how your book, because as you mentioned, there's a lot of research about oil crisis, but how does your book approach that topic differently? Sure, yeah. The the 1970s oil, there, there were really two oil crises, um, one in 1973, 1974, and then another one in 1979, 1980. And these were periods of time when the United States was either formally embargoed from uh, imports of oil, from largely from Middle Eastern countries, um, or when they lost access to supplies of oil from Middle Eastern countries in the, the later crisis, the shock of 1979. Um, 1980, which was related to the Iranian Revolution. So the first, um, so this was sort of a period when the United States um, was more heavily reliant on the import of oil to satisfy its growing oil demand than it is now, actually. Um, and so in the 1960s, in 1960, um, a lot of um, oil producing countries, which had Kind of colonial relationships with Western oil companies began to organize themselves and formed OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, um, in 1960, which was this cartel that wanted to uh, help these different countries coordinate their oil production policies um, in order to get better prices and to sort of have more control over the oil market than they felt they'd, ha they'd had before. And so the 19... And so this, this capacity developed in 1960, but the first time it was really successfully used was in 1973. And there's, this is very resonant for what's happening right now in the Middle East. There was the Yom Kippur War between Israel um, and a coalition of Arab states, which were trying to recover land that they had lost in the 1967 Six-Day War. Um, and the United States, as it has done, supported Israel in that conflict. And they were warned by um, certain Arab states that if they gave aid to Israel in the Yom Kippur War, they would face um, economic consequences. And so the Nixon administration 
went ahead with um, resupplying the Israeli military. And in retaliation, um, the Arab states of OPEC embargoed, stopped sending oil, their oil to the United States um, and also raised their prices of oil. So this led to a fairly quick um, price crisis where the price spiked overnight in October 1973. Um, and as a result of the price crisis, it's hard to say if there were actual shortages, uh, but there were shortages at gas stations, shortages of heating oil um, as the price went up and you had sort of panic buying where people would top up their gasoline tanks because they weren't sure if there'd be enough oil the next day. So you'd get this kind of odd consumer behavior. Um, so whether there were whatever it means to say there were real or actual shortages, there were shortages sort of on the ground in different places. Um, and this, so this embargo lasted until March um, 1974. It was ended, but prices remained higher um, throughout the 1970s. Um, part of a general inflation, there's lots of reasons, I'm sure, for that. Um, and and the, the concern that this first oil crisis had revealed the dependence and the vulnerability of the United States um, their dependence on foreign oil and the, their vulnerability, therefore, to political interventions on the part of um, oil suppliers they didn't control. Then, under the Carter administration, 1979, the Iranian Revolution overthrows the Shah of Iran, who was the um, a staunch ally of the United States. Iran had been uh, um, an ally of the U.S. throughout the 1970s. Um, and in so doing, the U.S. lost access to Iranian oil exports, which... Um, which posed, uh, which was a, also a significant problem. Then you had the return of price spikes, the return of shortages, the return of this sort of second oil shock um, conversation happening. Um, the OPEC, um, its ability to elevate prices um, was eroded in the 1980s. Um, and just, I was just actually listening today about the conflict happening right now in, in the Middle East, um, and especially around the United States and Britain, um, bombing Yemen. Um, and one of the arguments I've heard that the Houthis in Yemen have been making is that, um, you know, why aren't Arab states embargoing the, the United States or Israel um, the way they would have done in the 1970s, which kind of suggests the ways in which the politics of that region, the geopolitics of oil has shifted um, for a variety of a variety of reasons. Um, but yeah, so that's sort of a long-winded way of saying you have these two shocks, two moments of shortage and price spikes in this really important mm -hmm. um, energy oil resource. So my book is about um, what makes it unique, I guess, is there, there's a lot of, a fair number of accounts of the oil crises. Um, you'll find books about them or, you know, larger works about the history and geopolitics of oil will have chapters and accounts of, of the, the oil crisis of the 1970s. Um, and these are often oriented towards understanding geopolitical histories or economic histories of the United States, the Middle East, the global economy. Um, sometimes American electoral politics. There's an ex excellent book by Meg Jacobs called Panic at the Pump, which came out in 2016. Um, and it's about uh, sort of the role of the energy crisis, the oil crises of the 70s in the ascendancy of um, conservatives and conservative political movements in the United States. My book, I think, is unique because it takes um, this, this cultural history, what I call a cultural history approach um, to understanding the energy crisis. And by that, I mean um, cultural history is a, an approach to history that focuses on not just the history of culture, but the history of meaning, 
and tries to, and the way people make meaning um, at different moments in time and what the effects of those meanings are in the larger histories of those places. So I'm think I'm interested in, yes, the economic and geopolitical history of the oil crises, but um, so was always infused with this concern with the ways in which the energy crisis was um, debated, interpreted, um, and sort of mobilized in different ways and these different cultural discourses um, to use the academic the academic term. Uh, th thank you very much. That was a very, very good overview of what happened in the 1970s. And I think it, a couple of months ago, I, I came across something on Twitter. It was an interview, Milton Friedman asking uh, for military involvement to stage a coup with just a, you know, suggestion they threw around of, of oh. some Arab countries to get back to oil. <laughs> and and mm -hmm. you mentioned cultural history. I really like that idea, cultural history of oil crisis. And uh, so one of the most fascinating parts of your book is how you talk about this idea of American lifestyle, this idea of the, the mass consumption before this energy crisis, and how this idea of American lifestyle was was kind of promoted as a, as as a let's say a model or as an antidote to the communist lifestyle, and that sort of paved the way or had a role in that energy crisis. Can you talk about uh, this part of the book, please? Sure. Yeah, I had to give. I felt like I had to give some kind of account um, of why. What? So I wanted to think about the the importance, the impact of the energy crisis. That was the main goal, but then. I had to give some kind of account of why it was in 1973 the United States would be vulnerable to this kind of um, you know, disruption in supply, why it was consuming so much oil, so dependent on imported oil. Um, and there are many reasons for that. And other people have written about the history of oil policy um, in the United States, which um, kind of ironically restricted the number, the, the degree to which imports could come into the American market. It protected American oil producers because they didn't want to be undercut by cheap foreign oil. And this also actually had the effect of accelerating the depletion of more easily accessible oil resources in the United States. So that, that's one approach you can take. But I was trying to think culturally, I mean, the United States emerges in the post-World War II period as this just massive energy consumer um it's it's rare to it's rare for a historian to to commit to saying something is unprecedented um because there's always we always like to find some kind of precedent or um, echo or similarity in the past but this really was unprecedented the, the degree of energy consumption that existed in the post-war us i was trying to think about um why that was and there's there's lots of arguments out there about it but one thing that hadn't been discussed before that I think is important was this effort to um, create a mass consuming society um, as a, to create a contrast to Soviet communism as an antidote of sorts to Soviet communism. Um, in the post-war period, America's ability to make um, consumption accessible to more and more people was taken to be a sign of its superiority as an economic system over against um, communism. So it's almost cliche to point to the 1959 kitchen debate. This lots of undergraduates know about the kitchen debate between Richard Nixon and Nikita Khrushchev, but that really is a great illustrative moment where you have the American president and the Soviet premier in a a, a model American kitchen debating their uh, the relative merits of their systems. And Nixon is saying, you know, look at the technology, look at the access to consumption and energy that our system provides. This is a sign of our sort of superiority of our system. Um, 
And the other thing is suburbanization in the post-war period. Um, suburbanization is a key part of post-war politics, post-war social and cultural life as more and more Americans move out to suburbs. Obviously not everyone, but a, a significant proportion of the country. And suburbanization, um, living in suburbs, you know, is presupposes access to an automobile, presupposes access to all kinds of um, of energy, to infrastructure, roads, um, gas stations, um, different materials. Um, but sub suburbs were encouraged by the U.S. government. Um, also, as this kind of antidote to communism, there was a, a famous line in the 1950s that, you know, the private homeowner is too busy to be worried about communism. He's got too much to do. He has to mow the lawn and go to work to pay for the mortgage. Um, he doesn't have time for those kinds of ideas um, and isn't really interested because, you know, he's this in independent uh, homeowner. So in encouraging suburbanization and, and encouraging private homeownership as a way to um, inoculate the post-war American population to the potential lure of communism, um, in pursuing mass consumption um, as the kind of benefit of post-war capitalism. To me, I think there's there's a route there um, to the energy crisis because you don't have an energy crisis if you don't have this mass, mass-consuming um, society. Um, the other thing that's interesting about the United States is that it's often in this period in the 1970s imagined as this energy consumer um, because it imported so much of its oil increasingly going into the 1970s, but it was actually still the world's, I think, second largest oil producer at the same time. So it was producing enormous amounts, but consuming so much more um, that it became dependent on um, other countries' energy resources that it didn't have control over or didn't have as much control over as it would have liked to have. And and as you mentioned, so there was this the, the fears of this kind of energy instability may resurface. And, and another part that was really, again, fascinating was <clears throat> Thomas Malthus. He said that the ideas of Thomas Malthus, that resources and pop, uh, are limited for the population, kind of an apocalyptic vision again, came up again. How, how, how did it resurface and how did it uh, influence America's energy management system? Yeah, so Malthus is interesting. He's this now controversial figure um, a British reverend and demographer from the late um, the late 18th century who you know made this argument that um, population will always grow faster than its resource base and if you don't control population growth in a variety of ways then nature will do the control for you by through famine through war mm. through disease that sort of thing what's interesting about Malthus is that those ideas um, his ideas had a lot of sway um, in Europe but didn't really make a huge enormous impact in America until the post-war um, era. And this is, again, part of thinking culturally about what prepared Americans to perceive um, the energy crisis in the ways that they did in the 1970s. So in post-war America, you have the emergence of, um, or the I guess the evolution of conservationist thought into environmentalist thinking and the emergence of environmentalism. Um, um, and so Malthus is a, a part of that, I think, because in the post-war world, population growth began to accelerate or continued to accelerate. And the United States was now in this moment of where it had self-consciously said it was going to take up the mantle of post-war leadership of the world. It was the sole 
well, was one of two superpowers in competition with the Soviet Union. I think in that role, you had a lot of intellectuals and experts and policy people and politicians seeing global population growth and becoming very concerned about the resource, um, the ability of the world to provide resources indefinitely if population continued um, to grow that way. So Malthusian kinds of thinking became um, part of environmentalist thought um, in the United States, culminating in the 1960s and 1970s with the idea of a population bomb, which an American scientist, Paul Ehrlich, had articulated this idea that the world was heading towards some kind of population um, collapse. So there's these kind of apocalyptic ideas circulating around that perhaps um, humans are consuming too much, and this is because there's too many humans, and you know what is going to be the the near and long term future of our ability to access sufficient resources at these rates of growth, um, which is also interesting because it's part of this evolution. Early post war environmentalism was actually concerned with abundance, too much pollution, too many chemicals, um, too many homes um, being built, you know, on on ecologically sensitive land and whatnot. Um, but it, it that concern with abundance begins to um, become a concern with scarcity around the, the figure of population. When there's an abundance of humans, then there's this fairly quick shift in the late 60s and early 70s to a concern with, oh, resource scarcity could be a, a problem as well. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Uh, you've given us a great overview of what was going on before 1970s in the United States in terms of consumption, and then also you told us what the oil crisis was. Now it's 1973, the oil embargo comes in, and uh, it impacts the economy, and there's this also shift from a Keynesian liberalism towards a new liberal economy. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in these ideas. How did this shift come about from First of all, what is Keynesian liberalism, and how did it shift to the new liberal economy? And I, and I myself, I'm really interested in environmental thought. I did parts of my PhD thesis on eco ecological humanities. So I had to read a lot about the history of environmentalism in the United States and in mm. Rachel Springs, uh, yeah. uh, Silent Spring, Richard Carson. So, um, can you tell us about how this economic shift from a Keynesian liberalism came about, and what was the role of environmental narratives or thoughts in this shift? Sure. Yeah. So yeah, this is really, I find this interesting as well. Um, I mean, obviously I put it in the book, so I must find it interesting. Um, so I'll, part of what this book is arguing, it's called energizing neoliberalism. So I'm trying to account for the rise of a neoliberal way of governing societies, way of thinking about the world um, in the United States and North America, um, which may be under strain and stress in our current moment, but say 10 years ago, we would have said neoliberalism was the dominant, um, the dominant sort of governing, uh, way of governing people and thinking about society. Um, and so 
in order to account for its rise, I have to think about what came before and what did what did it displace. And I make an argument in the book that in the post-war period, Keynesian liberalism was um, the hegemonic or dominant um, sort of lens through which American policymakers, politicians, intellectuals, media people, sort of the expert class, the way they thought about and tried to govern um, the United States and other parts of the world. So Keynesian liberalism comes from the ideas of um, John Maynard Keynes, the British economist um, from the 1920s, 30s, and uh, 40s. Um, and essentially, it's a way of describing an approach to, to governance. It really, in the United States, became um, legitimized in the New Deal during the Great Depression, this idea that the government and its, its experts have a role to play and can actually manage the idea of like managing the economy um, through the production of statistics and expertise. You can kind of calibrate things so that there is a good amount of economic growth. There's a good amount of employment. And if things start to tilt one way or the other, you use the tools of policy, um, in particular deficit spending, um, where the government might start spending money to encourage people to spend so that you don't um, fall back into a depression. Um, so it's really this, this optimism about um, the ability of governments um, to manage economies and to have really high levels of employment, high levels of growth. Um, and it's always concerned about preventing a return to the Great Depression. Um, you know, using the state to stimulate consumption and that will stimulate production. And you won't get into these um, sort of economic depression cycles. Um, environmentalism, I think, is important for destabilizing or delegitimizing um, that paradigm. And this is, an, I think, an argument that I haven't seen made in a lot of the things that have been written about the shift, the kind of conservative or rightward shift in American political life, which a lot of historians have written about, seeing the 60s, 70s, and the 1980s, obviously with Reagan, as this key shift. And we always want to sort of point to obviously conservative figures and movements and forces. And so environmentalism um, sometimes gets a bit of uh, a pass um, for that reason. But I think the role of environmentalism here is that Keynesian liberalism was really about uh, encouraging, stimulating consumption. It's sort of legitimated, articulated during a depression when people are not able to consume as much, and it's about reflating the economy. When you come to the late 60s and 1970s, the concern of environmentalists is not to stimulate uh, more consumption. It's about actually reducing consumption, reduce, especially reducing the consumption um, of energy. So environmentalism is this broader critique of a mass consumer society, which Keynesian liberalism was designed to um, cultivate and um, to sustain over time. I think that's one of the key... Um, the key points of tension between the two is that environmentalism, at least in the in the 70s, environmentalists were saying we've we've created this uh, mass consumption society that we are over consuming. Uh, we need to find ways to consume less. Um, Keynesian liberalism wasn't really um, designed for that kind of a paradigm. Um, but the other the other part of it is that. Kind of ironically, I suppose, environmentalists and the neoliberals or the those interested in a shift towards more uh, free market forms of governing um, society, deciding how resources are distributed and consumed, 
they kind of overlapped on this idea that we should turn to free market forms of pricing of energy to get people to consume less energy. Um, so there was a, a significant part of the of sort of mainstream environmentalist uh, thinkers who are arguing for a return to to free markets that in in the form of decontrolling oil prices, letting oil prices go up so that people will consume um, less. I don't think environmentalists would often like to see themselves as complicit in the rise of of a kind of neoliberal paradigm, but um, there it was um, in a lot of the stuff that I was reading from the late 70s, this kind of frustration that you know, the US throughout the period was really struggling to get its energy consumption under control. So what can we do? We Well, they came around on the idea of, well, we need much higher prices so that people simply cannot consume as much as they're accustomed to doing. And um, as, again, as you mentioned, and I said it earlier that I'm really interested in this uh, environmental <laughs> discourse, and it's quite interesting how so the 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 economists let's say they did want to do something about it but at the same time they weren't really serious about it so they kind of shifted the discourse on individuals the role of individuals and individual freedom um uh, so what were the debates about the energy conservation ethics and also more importantly that the role of individual freedom in these debates yeah so there there was um this interesting uh, term I started seeing when I was reading stuff from the period, this idea of an, an energy conservation ethic is what the term was that would get used. You would see television commercials about it. You would see government um, government issued statements. You would see newspaper editorials saying we need an energy conservation ethic. Um, and this was the idea that, well, one solution to the energy crisis, to this in inflation of prices and this decline of supply, um, and the vulnerabilities that uh, exist therein is to just consume less um, energy. And so you would have environmentalists saying, yes, um, we should absolutely do that. People should, you know, learn to live differently, should change their habits. Um, this is, you know, the idea of like turning the light switch off when you leave the room so you don't waste electricity. A lot of that kind of thing um, emerges out of the energy crisis or uh, period. But there were more kind of... Uh, uh, neoliberal, um, market-oriented thinkers, um, and sort of not, I guess, non-environmentalists who would make the same argument, yes, we need an energy conservation ethic, but they weren't thinking as an environmentalist might that, you know, I'm, we want energy conservation so in the future we have this kind of low-impact, sustainable society. Um, the argument on the other side, the non-environmentalist side, is that we need an energy conservation ethic in the short term because our consumption is a national security problem. It's a threat. It makes us vulnerable to these kinds of um, supply interruptions. So if we can just get our populations to use less energy in the short term, while also opening up, you know, the outer continental shelf of the United States to more oil development, while opening up Alaska to oil development, we can sort of buy time until we can produce enough energy in the form of oil, uh, build more nuclear power plants, and then we'll have uh, a high energy, um, but also um, secure, an energy secure um, society. So initially, there's this emphasis on both sides, though, on addressing individuals about their energy consumption, um, saying, you know, there's something every single citizen can do, everyone has to make good decisions about their consumption, about how much light they use in their home, um, they have to insulate their homes, they should try to drive less, you know, take a staycation instead of a vacation, these kinds of 
these kinds of things. So there was kind of an appeal to volunteerism because there was uh, an understanding that there wouldn't really be an appetite, although there were discussions about implementing rationing, um, you know, gasoline ration cards and this kind of thing, and kind of a wartime um, scenario, there was an understanding there wouldn't really be a popular appetite for that sort of thing. So there were these appeals to volunteerism. Um, but as that didn't really um, take hold, um, the shift then goes from volunteerism to, well, if we can raise the price of energy, um, that's a way of not having government tell people how much energy they can consume. We let individuals decide, you know, what their budget is for energy. And in that way, we'll, we'll get um, consumption down. So I sort of call this like a, the neoliberal or the free market response. We'll just use the market to discipline how much people consume rather than asking them to discipline themselves because, you know, a couple of years of voluntarist appeals revealed that it was very, very difficult to get people to consume less. And of course it would be because for the previous 30 years, the, the country had been building a society that was um, organized in such a way that it was very difficult to reduce your energy consumption. If you rely on a car to get your groceries and uh, you live in a, a, you know, a suburban ranch home, that's um, hard to heat. Um, I mean, it, it was a, a difficult ask um, for just individuals to just, well, just use less light, use less heat, don't drive as much. Um, people didn't didn't appreciate that very much. And there was this campaign, and I, after reading about it in, in your book, I went out to check some of the videos, and I saw some of my favorite actors that don't be foolish, right? <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. Can you tell us yeah, what so that the, was? Yeah. yeah, so there was this public service announcement campaign called Don't Be Foolish, so instead of foolish, it was fu like fuel, don't be foolish. Uh, and it premiered uh, during the Super Bowl of the mid-1970s, and you would have George C. Scott and you know the actor who was a Republican, and Don Shula, the Miami Dolphins football coach, and others basically addressing the American public, um, telling them, you have a choice. Your individual choices about using lights and um, Don Shula's PSA, and he says there are lavish energy consumption. Um, if you don't sort of discipline yourself in your consumption, then you know we're going to this is that's your consumption becomes this kind of like uh, national security threat um, of some kind. And these things are also drawing on deeper, I think, uh, a deeper kind of Puritan Protestant heritage around self-discipline and delayed gratification. They're making those sort of appeals too, um, as if a lot of people's energy um, consumption was entirely, um, you know, entirely flexible, um, whereas they were sort of stuck in these um, a kind of just geographical uh, way of organizing society that required them to use a lot of energy. Um, so yeah, Don't Be Foolish is kind of a, a fun one. There was a later one, I forget the name of it, but Gregory Peck was in one in 1980, um, also telling Americans to, it was trying to be more positive that during the Carter years, he was trying to say like, keep it up, you know, we can keep producing our energy consumption. Um, but all these kinds of appeals were pretty much gone with the Reagan era. Um, Reagan's um, optimism about consumption being good, having more power, more consumption, um, more optimism, more patriotism, you know, these these kinds of appeals to doing less um, became um, politically very unpopular, as mm -hmm. Jimmy Carter learned when he lost to Reagan uh, pretty handily. Well, I'm I'm now intrigued, kind of, to find that Gregory Peck's uh, <laughs> commercial <laughs> uh, commercial as well. But anyway, you you um, 
So you did talk about volunteerism that relies on individuals, but then you go on to discuss how this market pricing discipline uh, changed all those things. They kind of decided to ditch reliance on volunteerism and, 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 and conservation ethics. What was that part of the, the story of uh, energy crisis? Yeah, I, I think what, what the book is trying to show is that there were different ways of perceiving and interpreting the energy crisis. So prices are higher for oil and other forms of energy. There are shortages. There are concerns. And it's always, so in, in the near term, those are always serious things, but also a big part of the crisis is, well, what does this portend for the future as well? If it's this bad now, what's it going to look like in 10 years, 15 years, 20 years? What does that mean for the American uh, way of life? What does that mean for American global leadership? What does that mean in the Cold War? That's always um, sort of there. But so there's different ways of interpreting the crisis. And there was this, the initially this kind of dominant way that, you know, we consume too much. Um, we need to consume less. Our, our society, our form of capitalism is unsustainable. So I call this kind of like an environmentalist interpretation. But there was always also another kind of interpretation that would say, yes, there's an energy crisis. There's not enough energy right now. Um, but it's because governments have meddled with um, oil companies, with markets. They've overregulated things. And if we just liberate the companies and liberate markets, if we deregulate them, decontrol prices, then we'll, we'll eventually produce enough energy for our needs. We'll have energy abundance again um, in the future. And so I'm showing that, that that second interpretation is what ultimately wins by the early 1980s. And the turn to free market pricing, to decontrolling oil prices, um, to deregulating the um, oil production process. Because another context here is in the late 60s and early 70s, there have been a lot of environmental regulations placed on um, producers. And so oil companies were also very happy to say there's an energy crisis and the only way to solve it is for environmentalists to lessen their demands on, you know, the, the kinds of things we need to be concerned about as producers because our primary goal now should be producing uh, more energy. Um, so the, I'm sort of making this convoluted, but the, by the 1980s, it's this turn to the market. And so again, the idea is, well, the price will go up for a little while. And so people will consume less. Um, and that and this higher these higher prices will enable companies who are now less regulated, enable markets that are less regulated to go out to explore for more oil, um, to experiment and produce the energies that we need without government interference. And that's really kind of the ethos of the the 1980s. A key part of the Reagan um, platform was this energy plan that he put out, which essentially said we're going to liberate American you know entrepreneurialism and, and companies and individuals to solve the problem as opposed to trying to regulate our way out of it um, and to get people to just to feel bad about consuming too much. We're going to rely on markets to sort of distribute resources and, and get things going. Um, so yeah, I think that that's the kind of key shift, I guess, in just the, the interpretation of what the crisis means and how different people with different visions of the future use the crisis to argue for their, mm. their particular view. Mm. And, and do you think that the oil crisis and then transition towards using the market as a governance to sort of undermine democracy and the power of people? Um, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, uh, I'm very uncomfortable with, I mean, this book is a critique, I suppose, of 
a neoliberal paradigm. I'm uncomfortable with making everything a matter of the market and someone's ability to pay. Um, and so, yeah, certainly, it's certainly, um, especially in the Reagan era, was part of deepening inequalities because then it becomes about, well, having high prices while people with more money are able to consume a lot more than than poorer people. So there's certainly a way in which, um, you, you know, the neoliberal argument is that economic freedom is paramount, um, but in in a free market society, you know, economic freedom um, is calibrated with how much um, wealth and access to money you have um, as well. So yeah, I think um, definitely there was a a um, an issue there, and also in sort of just the denigration of what um, governments and what the public and what people as collectives can accomplish as well. It was again very much about focusing on individual consumption, individual desires. Um, as opposed to a broader collective sense of how, you know, we might rebuild um, or remake our societies and ourselves to be um, more sustainable or what have you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Uh, well, one of the reasons that I like to this book is that it covers many different topics that I'm personally interested in. You talk about the economy, you talk about environmentalism, and you also talk about cinema there. So you yeah. talk about American cinema in 1970s and how they depict this energy crisis and they were, and, and in ways that they were sympathetic to, to environmentalists. Can you provide an example of that? Please talk about how, what was the role of cinema in depicting this energy crisis there? Yeah, I see cinema as a great, um can be a great source for understanding, I think, just the cultural environment in which people are thinking through and interacting with things that are going on in their in their society. And so I wanted to look, so part of the argument of the book as well is that neoliberalism and the shift to neoliberalism wasn't merely, um, you know, an imposition of experts, that it was all, there was also kind of a populist element um, to neoliberalism. And so I wanted to look to cinema to understand um, sort of broader cultural um, interpretations and engagements with the energy crisis. How are people thinking about it? So initially, um, there were uh, films that would um, that were kind of sympathetic, as you said, to the the environmentalist position on oil and energy consumption. That would frame um, oil as a some kind of threat to the American. Um, to Americans, to the American nation. Um, and so one really kind of fun film from the 1970s that does that is there was a King Kong remake um, starring Jeff Bridges, um, I think from 1975, 1976. It was this big budget film, um, but it was this environmentalist take on King Kong. So Jeff Bridges plays some kind of environmentalist or environmental scientist. And it turns out that they find themselves on King Kong's island because they're looking for more oil. It's like an oil exploration mission. It's this um, oil and gas company called Petrox Petroleum, I think. Um, and, and in the film, they end up taking King Kong back to New York City to be a, a mascot for um, for the oil company. And so it's this film about the exploitation of nature. Um, King Kong is a sympathetic um, figure um, 
in the film. And so the, the pursuit, um, the extraction of oil, the pursuit of oil, um, and the kind of greed that's imagined to be part of that process in that King Kong film um, was one way of thinking about oil as in this kind of negative um, environmentalist light. Um, and there was another one. So the other one is um, the Robert Redford film um, of the Three Days of the Condor, which was uh, directed by Sidney Pollack. And that was a, a film that was framing oil as this kind of geopolitical threat to the United States. Robert Redford plays a, a CIA uh, researcher in that film. And it ends on this note where the US government um, has become involved in all these um, dirty dealings in foreign countries in order to secure access to oil. But it's also this kind of critique of America, like uh, they do that because we demand it of them. We demand oil to sustain our, our way of life. Um, so there's, again, this, this sense of oil as this threat um, to America's self-conception um, or American self-conception as being this kind of good nation, um, when in reality their consumption you know, ties them into all these kind of shady dealings um, that are part of the, the Three Days of the Condor plot. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a number of kind of interesting engagements with mm. oil. Uh, I, I watched that movie, I think 10 years ago, but I never ever thought about it from an environmental perspective. I'm going to watch it again soon when I get the time. Well, it's it's interesting because it kind of comes at the end. Like you're there's this conspiracy mm. happening yeah. and it's revealed at the end. Oh, it's about oil. That's sort of the, mm. the reveal, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Spoiler alert. And I also do remember that maybe in 19... 60s there were a lot of not that i'm what was born there but anyway, i've seen lots of movies and i know that there were a lot of movies about the impacts of pesticide there were huge insects or spiders walking into people's homes which were again they, they did reflect this environmental ethics back then mm -hmm. uh, and in your book so you have this book but you also talk about uh, some of my favorite films but unfortunately with the bad politics that are, that are the car <laughs> car films and how they provide yeah this maybe it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of contrast to those other films that you mentioned. There's stress, freedom, open roads, individualism. Uh, so can you talk about this these movies as well, and also tell us how these movies connect automobile with the idea of mobility and political freedom? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, so there's you have the environmentalist films. Yeah, like you said, in the '60s and into the '70s, they sometimes touch on oil or resources. Um, but then there's there was this really interesting uh, flowering, I guess, of car-centered movies in the 1970s. And some of them are really great. Um, American Graffiti is a great film by George Lucas. Um, and there are others. And some of them are, are really not great films, but they were very popular at the time. And I just, I noticed that you, a lot of directors um, that people would recognize, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, um, of course, I'm not remembering the other names, but there were a bunch who did these films about car chases or people who drive cars for a living or car racing or truckers. So Sam Peckinpah, um, the, the, the once great Western director, directed The Awful Convoy. Um, and so these films, I saw in them a response to the energy crisis, to the idea that Americans, because they ex often experience the energy crisis through the threat to people's ability to drive. Um, in so far as they didn't have access to gasoline or they felt guilty for driving um, for a variety of reasons. And these films that kind of explore the automobile, explore the car, explore driving across the country, um, they often are about these kind of individualist figures 
um, and the ways in which they express their individualism and their freedom by their through their ability to drive and their ability to, um, you know, kind of resist or rebel against authorities. And those authorities are always trying to restrict their movement, keep them from driving. Um, so in Convoy, Convoy is particularly interesting because um, in the energy crisis, um, in its politics, the independent truckers um, would often protest through slowdowns and convoys because they were arguing that um, hot, they, you know, their jobs are untenable with higher oil prices and with the speed limits that had been imposed to try to keep people from consuming as much gasoline. And so they became these kind of populist folk heroes standing up to the government and its regulations um, about how people could drive. And so in Convoy, um, you have um, Chris Christopherson, um, you know, country singer, film star, who plays this really cool independent trucker. Um, and the whole the whole film is about this self-organizing convoy of truckers that eventually comes to include a cross-section of Americans. And they're just convoying because they're upset about the state of their country. And the energy crisis is just one of many things. Um, but, you know, being a trucker, being a driver, um, evading the sheriff who's always trying to keep you going the speed limit and stop you from driving as fast as you want. That's sort of central to the plot of that film and to a lot of others. Burt Reynolds's 1970s filmography, his most popular films like Smoking and the Bandit and Cannibal Run are also about these kind of things. Um, and so I, I was, in the book, I argue that I think these films that kind of glory in automobility, so um, movement through automobiles, um, glory in speed, as opposed to government-imposed speed limits. Um, I saw in them what I call this kind of petro-populist um, resistance or response to the idea of an energy conservation ethic. They kind of reject that idea. Um, the environmentalist is often um, this kind of emasculated villain um, in a lot of these films who's sort of finger-wagging at the all-American male who just wants to drive and be this kind of free independent um, citizen. So I think in those, and a lot a lot of critics actually, if you read some of the the film reviews and the various periodicals of the time, um, they would they kind of discerned this thing. There's this kind of like uh, right word populism in a lot of these films, and they're very popular films um, too, um, essentially arguing for um, driving and the freedom of the open road as um, an inheritance from the frontier. That's this kind of political right um, of American individualism. And so access to oil, consuming oil goes along with that. Mm. And any attempt by the government to um, restrict or alter those patterns of consumption are taken to be, you know, um, signs or examples of some kind of tyranny um, in the films in a variety of ways. But it's always done this kind of fun, like all these films are kind of fun and jokey, um, kind of hokey. So it, it's kind of interesting that way. I remember growing up, I also didn't grow up in the 70s, but I remember I saw them on TV in the 90s and um, didn't really, obviously wouldn't pick up on that context. But when you see them all together and try to think about them and what's happening in the 70s, um, to me, it becomes kind of clear. There's also a kind of anxiety about the automobile and a kind of nostalgia about it. Like American Graffiti is very much wrapped up in this nostalgia for post-war car culture. Um, I don't know that Lucas that's not so much a petro-populist film as it is this kind of uh, artifact of um, longing for a simpler time where consumption mm. was a, a less politically fraught um, act, especially the consumption of, of the automobile. 
and it's a beautiful looking um beautiful looking film too so it's, mm -hmm. it was very you know it was a huge hit in 1973 there was a sequel that most people don't know about made in 1979 um, it was shown um for a, quite a long time in the in 1973 1974 so it becomes this kind of um text that people can kind of gather around while things seem to be getting more complicated and falling apart mm -hmm. and and as you mentioned, any resistance to this movie would be considered maybe anti-American, urban communist. It was a common label back then. And, and these movies perfectly represent uh, new liberal ethics of consumption and individual freedom. And I guess being yeah. a cultural historian, it perfect, makes perfect sense for you to talk about the movies at the end of the book as well, which I guess is yeah. the perfect ending to the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, but before we come to the end of this conversation, I was wondering if there's any other project you're currently working on. Yeah, so the book came out just a few months ago, but I already, you know, feel the pressure to get on the next one. <laughs> so I am starting a project, um, which is going to be some kind of a history of um, the new economy. So this, the idea of an economy of computers and digital technology and information. Um, but I want to have a kind of longer view history of the new economy. So this is the economy we're, we're living with and watching unfold right now. But as I was doing research for this book, I found in the 1970s and 1980s, there was a lot of people starting to talk about, well, you know, computers um, and a kind of information, a post-industrial economy, maybe that will be the way to solve the limits to growth that we seem to be butting up against in the 1970s with these different energy and environmental issues. And so... What I'm working on is to think about, well, how are different energy imaginaries, so ways of thinking about how energy and society intersect, like even post-war ones around the possibilities of nuclear power, how might those have informed the construction of a new economy? How did the energy crisis inform the construction of a new economy? And in particular, the idea of um, innovation, technological innovation as the sort of capitalism's way mm. um, to exceed the limits to growth. Um, through different kinds of technologies. Um, so that's that's kind of the main thing that I'm I'm starting to think through. I'm also working on a second project, which is going to be about kind of a more a theory-oriented book around energy and his history writing um, in general. And then I'm also part of a, a collective called the Petrocultures Research Group. Um, and so I've been co-organizing a series of meetings called after oil three so we're we're co-writing a book right now that has come out of those meetings which is going to be a a kind of humanities oriented cri critique or criticism of renewable energy um the way people talk about it the way they imagine it what they expect it to be able to do um in the current moment so it's it's historically informed but it's also about uh, about the present um as well so that's kind of an exciting exciting project that we hope to have out that'll be out much sooner than the new economy book i'm sure <laughs> looking forward uh, to reading and do you know which where which publisher is going to release these books uh i have an idea for the new economy one but it's not it's not okay. finalized yet um and we have an idea also for this um renewable energy one but that's also not finalized so mm. i can't be I can't. Yeah, be clear yeah, yeah. Well, uh, well, I hope to be able to talk to you soon again sometime, maybe towards the end of this year and early next year to talk about your new books on New Books Network. Thank you very That's much great. for accepting this invitation. Thank you. It was an absolute pleasure. I appreciate your interest.